Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Well, hello, I'm Paul Davenport and welcome to another episode of the Bible Feed podcast. Uh, This is episode number 31, I think, and this time we're going to do a sort of a question and answer session as a follow-up to a couple of earlier episodes, episodes number 17 and number 19, which we did on various aspects of the the Trinity and exploring some of the arguments for Unitarianism versus um, the Trinity. Uh, So episode 17 was just entitled Thinking About the Trinity, and episode 19 was uh, specifically asking the question, did Jesus pre-exist? So I'm really happy to have uh, with me here um, this time to offer some thoughts and answers on the comments we've had on those episodes, uh, Tom Gaston. So welcome, Tom. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here. Now, I see, Tom, that you've you've done some studies in this specific area and uh, on a theological topics so at a master's level and a doctorate level. Most of us at Bible Feeds haven't done any formal study in uh, in theology so it's uh, it's good to get that perspective on this subject i think as it's uh, it can be a pretty pretty complex one um, and i see you've also written a number of books and uh, we have actually had you on the podcast before on a previous episode on your latest book founding a faith so it's great to have you back uh, maybe we'll just kick off with this uh, episode, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your your journey so far on exploring Unitarian and Trinitarian theology. Sure. Well, so I was I was raised a Christadelphian, and so had that grounding and that understanding of of the Bible and, and that understanding of God. But I started mm. to explore it, I guess, at an academic level. My my bachelor's degree was in philosophy, but I also did a little bit of of classics, which covered. Um, early Christianity and that really got me thinking about the history of Christianity and the development of Christian doctrine and then so I went on and did a master's in history at Birmingham that's that's Birmingham UK Birmingham UK yes (laughs) Um, was about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity and then I went on at Oxford to cover that further in um, a doctorate degree Um, and at that point I was really exploring the doctrine of the Trinity in the first and second centuries and, and some of the third century um, mm. of Christianity, but in relation to to see whether there are connections with either Greek Platonist philosophy or also Gnosticism. Yeah. And then, as you say, I went on, um, put together a couple of books on that, um, particularly one, God the Father, which I edited, um, which is a collection of essays about the Trinity, both from a biblical perspective, so different how different books of the Bible treat God, and also from a historical perspective yeah. to sort of trace uh, how that doctrine evolved over time. Okay. So so what's the aim of that book and, and, the, and the approach that you take? One of the things we tried to do was to bring together uh, a group of different authors and to do something that was maybe not quite um, at an academic level, but at, you know, at a high level of rigor, well-referenced, but, but it was also sort of um, readable for a, a popular audience. But it was also peer-reviewed so that you know ev- everything was checked and rigorous. And so we wanted to do that for um, the Doctrine of the Trinity, because that's sort of fairly central to, to Christian mm-hmm. understanding. Um, and then in terms of approach on that, we started with um, sort of the Bible. And I suppose what's quite important about this is that in church, we would usually sort of think about the Bible as a single book, and we would sort of, you know, pick, you know, pick and choose bits and pieces from yeah. different parts of the Bible. And in One God the Father, we try and stick to um, treating the different sections of the Bible 
on their own. So we talk about um, you know the old the Old Testament by itself, and and then when we get to the New Testament, separate out the Gospels from, for example, the letters of Paul, and sort of seeing how those particular sort of types of those books in themselves talk about God um, to see whether there's sort of any differences between um, how those different sections of the Bible mm. uh, treat about God. So, so it was really about trying to sort of approach this more like, you know, a scholar would approach this um, and, and bring that rigor to the subject. So that book is available, I think it's on uh, Lulu. That's right. Yep. You'll find it on Lulu, but yeah, if you, you Google it, you'll find it. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, we'll pop a link into the into the show notes uh, so that uh, people can pick that up. So that book obviously engages with the subject at, at perhaps a slightly more academic level. And you've obviously done that in, in your um, studies at Birmingham and, uh, and at Oxford. But I guess you were coming into that with a Unitarian perspective. Yes. And, and with this sort of subject, it's, it's quite difficult to approach it with a completely open mind. Sure. And I just wonder how that experience was in the world of academia, exploring those kind of subjects, either from the point of view of your own bias that you might bring to it, or the bias of the academic system, which is perhaps more in line with um, a Trinitarian view. So because I was approaching this from a historical perspective, I was looking to see what the historical documents were saying mm. and to approach this as a historian to sort of detach your... So you, you were doing history rather than theology? It, yes. So, so what's the sort of theological implications that you could you could take from it? Yeah. I was primarily doing doing history. Um, and, and when you're looking at that, you want to sort of try and detach your theological brain and say, okay, let's say, you know, the Gospel of Mark, let's, for the moment, let's not talk about this as scripture, let's talk about this as a first century text written from a particular perspective and, and what do we take from that? So that's what I was doing there and, and following that kind of um, approach that is, is common in academia of, of reading texts in their con you know in their original historical context. So to that extent, what I was doing was acceptable and was not controversial within mm. that academic context. And actually, whilst many of the people I was working with, um, including my supervisor for my doctorate, you know, are Trinitarian Christians, the ideas that I was exploring, like that Greek philosophy influencing the doctrine of the Trinity or that the doctrine of Trinity might have um, developed and changed over time, these are not unknowns within the, within the history of Christian, Christian mm. dogma. These are things that have been sort of floated from 19th century, 18th century. So they're not, they're not new ideas, and these are things that are, um, people are aware of within the academic sphere. Um, so whilst I was hoping to sort of you know bring something new to that and and discover something different from what had been said before, in that sense it wasn't controversial. I guess I had the advantage, being at Oxford, that this is not a again whilst it's got its theology department and you know many of the people there will have been sort of committed to a particular um, form of Christianity. Oxford itself is a is a is a secular university. It's not committed to any particular creed. Yeah. Um, so I'm not wasn't bound to you know any particular conclusion. I was you know wasn't mm -hmm. sort of ever presented with a uh, any sort of mandate from the department to say this is what you must conclude or anything like that. So you know I was free to take it. Where I was I was generally you know the challenge was to uh, present something rigorous that would be you know would then pass muster when it came to the viva. Um, mm. which ultimately, of course, it did, and I was awarded a doctorate for it. So I, I guess that proves I made my case and was found, you know, it was found yeah. at least to you know, be, have academic merit yeah. behind it. Okay. Okay, that's, that's useful. That's interesting to hear. So let's get into the, um, the questions and comments that we've had on uh, those two previous episodes. And, and just a bit of background as to what we covered in those episodes. In, in episode 17, we looked to sort of 
set some foundations and do some introducing of the subject and, and why it it seems that such different views of God and Jesus and the, and the spirit and the relationship between them arise from the same raw materials. Okay. And then we looked at where the the ideas of, of the Trinity might have come from, acknowledging that they're not there explicitly in the Bible. That seems fairly commonly acknowledged. And the seeds of it growing from thoughts around certain questions like the pre-existence of Jesus and was Jesus performing creation. So that, that was episode 17. Episode 19 focused specifically on uh, did Jesus pre-exist. Uh, spent quite a bit of time on John chapter 1, perhaps not surprisingly, and highlighting some of the, the Jewish thinking behind the ideas in John chapter 1 and linking that with ideas of personification in in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 8 um, and so on, where wisdom is personified. So, so both of those episodes actually did spend quite a bit of time in John chapter 1. It's, it's a key set of verses, John chapter 1, verse, verses 1 to 18. So, so let's start there. Maybe I'll just read uh, the opening verses of John chapter 1, which, as I'm sure you're familiar, goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then a few verses later in verse 14, it speaks about the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So perhaps as a general question to you first, Tom, perhaps you could just give us your take on that passage, um, those glorious opening of, uh, of John's Gospel. Yeah, it is a fantastic opening. Mm. And I think, I mean, I think the first thing I would say from having looked at this period and some of the literature that comes from this period, that for a Jew of the first century, at least for some, for some Jews, you know, Judaism was quite diverse in the first century, but for a Jew of this first century, the first part of what John says here, let's say up to verse 13, would have been uncontroversial. He would have been, they would have been fine with that. They would have said amen to all of that. We, without that context, think this is difficult. But for a first century Jew, they would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Got it. So it's it's that claim that John makes in verse 14, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's that's the new bit mm-hmm. that John is adding. He's, he's saying something different there. And that's the bit where, which would have been controversial, I guess, for his first century Jewish audience, that he's actually saying this thing that you're all familiar with, well, actually now this is embodied in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I would see this, and you know, this is not unique to me, this is common to a lot of scholars who comment on John's Gospel, Would I would see the background of this in the wisdom literature um, of Second Temple Judaism. So we see in Proverbs 8 the beginning of this concept of wisdom, where wisdom is personified as a woman, and she is said to have been with God at creation, and, and God mm-hmm. used wisdom in doing in that creative activity and then obviously through the rest of the book of proverbs that that personification is is used as a sort of contrast between the you know between wisdom and folly and and the reader is directed to try and choose wisdom none of that is meant to be taken literally there's there's uh, i think there's some very good research out there to indicate that you know the ancient world was very fine with the idea of abstract personifications they understood what was going on there there's no sense in which um this was meant to be a, a sort of a female deity or anything else you know everyone you know the original readers of proverbs would have got you know he's just talking about wisdom in a poetic way there's a there's another woman in in proverbs as well the foreign the strange woman the foolish woman exactly yeah yeah and again this is not a, this is not an evil deity mm. who's trying to tempt you away this is just a personification of folly so 
And then when you look into the sort of texts of um, Second Temple Judaism, so the books like the Wisdom of Solomon, um, the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, you see this same character, wisdom, reappearing, and sort of additional things are described about her, how, again, how she's um, active in creation, but also how she was embodied in the Torah, the, the law of Moses, and, and in the work of the prophets. Yeah. So all this idea of, and what John describes, the idea of, wis of, of, of wisdom dwelling amongst us, you know, again, not controversial, they would have got it. That's exactly the same kind of thing they would have been reading. And within those texts, there's a passage where uh, wisdom is said to have been spoken by God, and it's even described at some point as being the Logos, the Word. This is within those Wisdom of Solomon within those texts. Yeah. texts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that transition that John makes of talking about Word rather than Wisdom um, is already set up in that literature. I think probably his preference for that is obviously that Sophia in Greek is a feminine noun, whereas Logos is a masculine noun. Right. And I think it's probably easier for him and his audience when he's obviously going to then in verse 14 say this was embodied in Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's easier uh, to make that transition with, with a masculine noun rather than a feminine one. Um, I think that's probably the reason for the difference. The other thing, of course, that he's doing, and this is part of the context, is, is there's that overlay of Genesis in the beginning, yeah. um, and in the beginning, God said the you know the creative word. So again, that that theme of um, the word enacting in creation okay. uh, might be another reason why he's choosing logos rather than wisdom in this thing. But that seems to be the background. So again, John's original readers would have got that. They wouldn't have thought this logos was a pre-existent person. They would have thought here is this same concept we're familiar with, this personification of wisdom. But John is saying something new, which is. This has become fully embodied in Jesus Christ. Okay, but you often hear people jumping straight to the conclusion that that set of verses is showing that Jesus was there in the beginning with, with God, because the Word is there in the beginning with God. And, and I'm just curious if you have a, have a view on why that, that assumption is is jumped to so so readily. Yeah, I think I mean I think there's a couple of things here. So I mean, in part, it's because we are unfamiliar with the background, and so mm. we don't we don't necessarily get it first time. It's unhelpful in our English translations. The word is capitalised, so that makes it seem like word is a personal name that it's talking about a person. So this is there's no difference between talking mm. about Tom or Paul. You know, word is just a different uh, name. And if you substituted word therefore jesus then obviously it does sound it would, it would clearly sound very trinitarian in mm. the beginning was jesus and jesus was with god and jesus was god there's there's the doctrine yeah. of trinity you know i get it but that's not what's going on and i think it's worth mentioning also you know the the in those verses the pronouns that are used in that chapter word is described as a he but there aren't actually many pronouns in Greek. Greek doesn't use pronouns. They're all sort of just implied mm. by by the verb that's used. Except there is a pronoun um, at the end of verse 5 um, where John says, the word was the light um, and the darkness did not overcome it. So that light, yeah, there's a neuter pronoun used and, um, and it's impersonal. And what's really interesting is when John describes Jesus in, uh, later in the gospel as the light of the world, again, light is a neuter um, noun in Greek. So following the rules of Greek, he should apply a neuter pronoun to it, but he doesn't. He applies a masculine pronoun to it there. So he's talking about Jesus as the light of the world. He says he, but in, in, in again, there, there is, a, there is a masculine pronoun there. By the rules of Greek, 
he should have used a neuter pronoun, but he changes it specifically because he knows that Jesus is, is a person. He's a, you know. Right. But here in this chapter, chapter one, when he's referring to the word as the light, it's the neuter pronoun. He calls it in it. So if the translators were fair, I think it would be reasonable throughout this chapter to just talk about the word as an it until it gets to verse 14, of course, when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Okay. So, you know, again, we're, we're slightly misled, I think, by our unfamiliarity with the context and our and by the, the way that this has been trans, presented in our English translations. If you took those two things away, I think we would see more of the sense that this is, you know, the word is not a person until verse 14, mm. until it becomes embodied in Jesus Christ. Okay. So, so that chain of meaning from Old Testament Proverbs, personification of wisdom through to Second Temple Judaism, use of that alongside word, and then into John's gospel. That all sounds very coherent. Uh, we did explore a little bit in uh, in episode 17 of the influence of Greek philosophy on the meaning of logos. And you know, and that word, sure. that small word, is is made to carry a lot of baggage in different in different contexts. Definitely. And a, a specific question that we that we received about that that idea was: Well, John writing after Philo, for example, would have mm. known of those broader meanings, and is is intending to invoke some of those meanings from from earlier philosophical debates about the word. Yeah. What what what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So this. this this is something that comes up in the scholarship. It's possible, um, but I personally, from my own reading of this, is sceptical. So just a little bit of background. So that so the, the Logos is an important concept, both in Stoicism and then later in what we call Middle Platonism. Um, so in Sto- Stoicism, you find this concept of Logos Spermatikos, and it's you know, the idea of the, the, the seed principle that's okay. at the center of creation. So it's a really con- important concept for, for the Stoics, uh, as a sort of rational governing principle for creation, and that that, that, seed, that seeded that's yeah. the important point is seeded into creation. The problem with seeing backgrounds in Stoicism for Christianity is that the Stoics were materialists and pantheists, so they believed in God, but believed that you know God would have been material and you know was the same as the world. So it was it would have been a difficult transition for any Christian to look into Stoicism to see sort of see background for their own yeah. you know for their own understanding of God. But more probably, um, any sort of influence of the concept of the Logos into Stoic on late on, on, on Christians and, and and Jews of the time would have come through Platonism because Platonism was a sort of more natural. Um, jumping off point for Christians because Platonists, at least at this period, had a concept of a single transcendent creator God. And that obviously finds some affinity with Jewish monotheism and then obviously Christian monotheism. Um, And maybe we'll talk a little bit about this later. Philo does talk about the Logos quite a lot. So he has this idea and it sort of lends credibility to the idea that John is taking his um, ideas directly out of the wisdom literature because Philo, as an Alexandrian Jew, Yes, he is influenced by Platonism and possibly Stoicism, but he's also heavily influenced by the Old Testament and particularly the mm-hmm. wisdom literature of that period. So, you know, it's more likely that he is talking about the Logos primarily from a Jewish wisdom literature perspective than a than a philosophical one. I guess the main thing, and this is something that came up for me when looking at the possible influences of Platonism upon Christianity, is it's it's not enough ever to say, oh, look, these two words occur in, the same, in different texts, therefore one influenced the other. You actually have to sort of create some historical hypothesis. 
as to how one might have influenced the other. And where you've got someone like Philo, who was a rich, educated um, Alexandrian Jew, who would have been well-read, who you know has can demonstrate from his text that he knew Plato and quoted him, then actually it's not a stretch to think that Philo was influenced by Platonism. Where you've got a, a sort of Jewish Christian like John, who is either the son of Zebedee or a different John, yeah. um, uh, you know, an early Christian John, shows no evidence of a high Greek education, writes not necessarily terrible Greek, but is writing in common Greek. He's not writing in the sort of philosophical, um, classical Greek. Doesn't show any evidence of quoting any other sort of philosophical text. Doesn't show any other evidence throughout the rest of his gospel of any other sort of philosophical terms. It's difficult to then to make a case that he knew of Platonism or Middle Platonism. And whilst, you know, again, whilst it's possible that Philo in Alexandria could well have been schooled directly in, in Platonism, there wasn't a school of Plato in Palestine at this period. So it's difficult to see how a Galilean Jew would have, you know, come to a philosophical background. So for all those reasons, it seems unlikely that this is the background of, of the Logos in John chapter one. So if, if I can try and, try and summarize, I think I got two points from that. One is that, that the writings of Philo are essentially consistent with that uh, wisdom literature uh, in, in the use of Logos. And that the background of the writer of John's Gospel is somewhat different from the background of Philo and therefore much less likely to, to be using the word in a classical Greek uh, philosophical form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's uh, let's move on to uh, another comment uh, that, that we had, which is about the, it's a little bit about terminology, I suppose, um, and, and the, the term monotheism. Judaism, the Jews, clearly monotheistic. Yeah. But the comment was made that sometimes the debate about Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism views of God is presented as Unitarians are monotheists. Yeah. And, and they might call themselves biblical monotheists, the implication being that Trinitarians are, are presented as not. Uh, monotheistic, um, sure. which doesn't sound quite appropriate, but it might be interesting to go back to the the historical development of, of Trinitarian ideas and just you know how did Christians think of themselves alongside those terms? Did Trinitarian Christians sure. think of themselves as monotheists, for example? Yeah, basically. I mean, every early Christian that I you know researched as part of what I was doing um, for my doctorate would have affirmed uh, the Shema, the yeah. you know, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, that, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Most of them, as far as I'm, I can recall, quote it um, explicitly to affirm that point that they believe in one God. And if they don't, they certainly say other things to the same effect, that there is only one God. So uh, Christians of the second and third century at this period, when the ideas behind the Trinity are beginning to sort of develop and, and, and some of those building blocks are being put into place, they're also, they're preaching in the background of both Greek paganism, but also the challenge of Gnosticism. And both of those schemes are polytheistic. So traditional Greek paganism obviously has lots of gods. Um, and Gnosticism, whilst arguably the Gnostics might possibly have regarded themselves as monotheists, they have a lot of what they call eons, sort of spiritual beings, who are sort of in a, in a complex genealogy. 
So they look very polytheistic, even if that's not how they would have regarded themselves. And the Christians, in as much as they are criticizing that, they're criticizing paganism and Gnosticism in part for polytheism. Yeah. They, so they are adamantly you know, monotheistic in the way they regard themselves. The difference is how they choose to define that monotheism, what that means for there to be only one God. And if we take someone like Justin, for example, um, who is active mid-2nd century onwards, he is one of the first Christian philosophers, so yeah. somebody who has a philosophical background but then converts to Christianity. So, so is he, he's the guy who who tried all those schools of philosophy and didn't didn't like them, and then went for a walk on a beach one evening and met an old guy who talked to him about Christianity. That's that's <laughs> at least the the account that he gives us. Right. Um, and there's some some skepticism in the in the literature as to whether that's actually what happened or whether this is his sort of. That's a bit more difficult to tell. Right. It's a good story, though. It's a good story, absolutely. So yeah, he's coming from a Platonist background, and therefore his understanding of God fits very much into that mould of where the Platonists were at in the second century, which is that God is is uncreated and eternal. And therefore, for Justin, that's what God is, and that's what monotheism is, to say there's only one of that uncreated type of thing. And that leaves him then room to talk about other things um, which he doesn't see as God in that sense, but is sort of a little happy to call God. So Justin, at least on one occasion, talks about another God, and he's certainly happy to talk about Jesus mm. in a second place to God. And he, Justin himself, sees Jesus, sees the Son, sees the Logos, as a as an intermediary principle between God and the world, and that Jesus is doing things, the Logos is doing things that God can't do. God is too transcendent to interact directly with the world. So it wasn't God who talked directly to Abraham. Um, you know, it wasn't God who walked in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't God that spoke from the burning bush. It was the Logos who did these things, because God, the transcendent God, can't do those things. So Justin, for example, we would probably read him as saying there's two gods. Hmm. You know, there's the Father and there's Logos. But Justin himself wouldn't have said that. He would have said that only the Father was one God because he was the only truly uncreate thing. The Logos is something different from God, um, but Justin, you know, is a bit equivocal on that. He's probably quite happy yeah, to call yeah. him God. And, and and you see that then being teased out in the people that follow Justin, Christianity, as it follows this course, is then grappling with this idea of, well, there's only one God, what we mean by truly God, but there's also this second thing, and, and how do we classify that? And eventually, obviously, you get to that point where Christians move from a hierarchical view of God, that you've got this sort of one transcendent God, and then you've got the Son, and then you've got the Spirit. And eventually they'll move to a sort of co-equal sort of linear view of God that, you know, these, these all three are co-equal and co-eternal and all God and they're all one. But it takes some time for them to get there. But yeah, back to the original question. Yes, they would have all regarded themselves of God as monotheists. They would have all, you know, affirmed that there's only one God. But I think they would have granted themselves a lot more latitude in how they chose to define that monotheism than perhaps we in you know the 21st century would think about monotheism. It sounds like you're saying that those ideas emerging in what Justin wrote, you can trace to the influence of Platonism of that era, rather than being Im embedded in earlier Jewish or early Christian uh, thinking. Sticking with that era, we, we received a question uh, that the Trinity was developing to explain why Christians appeared to those around them uh, to worship two gods. Mm. And there's, for example, that comment which appears in um, 
Pliny the Younger's letter, where he says, he describes the practice of Christians in his uh, in his region, says they were in the habit of meeting in a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. So so they're getting this pressure to explain why you're worshipping two gods, and and the and the Trinity develops from that. So, so what what's what's your thinking on that? To deal with the, the quote on Pliny directly, it's unsurprising that a Roman would interpret what the Christians were doing and and talk about that as though Christ was a god. That's probably how they would understand it. And that's you know within that sort of Roman pantheon, I mean, everyone was was a god. Caesar was a god, yeah. right? So you, you know, it wasn't a very high bar <laughs> to say you know. You didn't. You didn't have to be an eternal being mm. to be a god. You could have been born a man and then ascended to the you know in, the imperial throne, and then that was enough to make you make you a god. You could be a god and quite and misbehave quite badly. And exactly. Yeah. You didn't have to be moral or good or anything like that. You know, none of the sort of characteristics that we would ascribe to to God. Sure. Uh, you know, required you to be you know a small g god um, in Roman terms. So it, it's unsurprising that they would interpret what the early Christians were doing um, as as reverencing a god. As to the question of whether that then is why the Trinity was developing to explain that tension, would suggest that there was some sort of inevitability in the idea that the worship of Jesus in a, you know, would, it, would ultimately lead you to some kind of theory about, well, how do you explain that in relation to monotheism? And I, I just don't think that the early Christians or even you know Jews of the first century would have required that. They understood the concept that there were different forms of worship and that you could reverence someone in a way that was appropriate that didn't make them God. So to sort of flesh that out a bit, there is a concept that certain scholars have tried to uh, work with. So, so people like Lara Hurtado and, and Richard Bachman and to a certain extent um, N.T. Wright as well. This idea that, you know, whilst the Trinity is not explicit in the New Testament, the fact that Christians worship Jesus is sort of tantamount to saying that, you know, Jesus was God because in Judaism, it says, you know, there's a command in the Torah about, you know, there's only one God and only him shall you serve. So the fact that Christians were even deigning to worship Jesus meant that they were treating him as God. But if you look at the way the New Testament describes the worship that is ascribed you know, to Jesus, compared to the way the New Testament describes worship of God, there is a clear distinction between the way those two things are used. And the types of verbs and the words described to God uh, and, and never ascribed to Jesus describe a higher form of religious worship than the primary word which is used to describe the worship of Jesus, which is proskuno, which is to bow, basically. And yeah. it, you could do that to a king, an emperor, to, to a high authority. There was there's no, nothing about that that implied this was therefore a deity. Um, I suppose the other way of, of, of framing this is you th if you think about the fact that if the early Christians, you know, the, the stumbling block, for example, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when he talks about um, the stumbling block to the Jews about Christianity, the stumbling block is the cross. The stumbling block is a crucified Messiah. The stumbling block is not the worship of Jesus. The stumbling block is not this high reverence being paid to the Messiah. I think actually that would have been uncontroversial to a Jew of the first century. They would have got the idea that actually the Messiah was somebody of, of special reverence. And depending on the, again, Judaism was multifaceted in the first century. There are lots of different types of Judaism. But, you know, throughout that, you see figures that are highly exalted um, within different strands of, of Judaism. They would have had no problem with the idea of, of, of figures who were of high status within the sort of the grand scheme of things. But the thing they stumbled over was the idea that this Messiah had then, you know, had been crucified, who had died. You know, that was the bit that they struggled with. Okay, thank you.
So let's uh, let's move on to a, a different question from from a different passage. Uh, this is from Hebrews uh, chapter one, uh, which we did uh, dip into in, in one of the previous episodes and look at part of it. But the question is about Hebrews chapter one and verses ten to twelve. So I will just read that. Well, the the flow of the the sentence, if you like, starts in verse eight. But of the Son, he says, and there's um, a, a quotation, and then verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So the question is, you know, that appears to speak of pre-existence and Jesus involved in performing creation. How, how does a Unitarian that has Jesus beginning at his birth uh, understand those verses? Sure. Yeah, that's a fair question. So I think a couple of things to explain here. So firstly, I think you'd want to look at the context of Hebrews 1 and what the writer is trying to do there. What he lays out in the first you know, two verses of the chapter is, is he says, you know, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. And then he'll go on in later chapters to explore how that revelation through Jesus is in some sense superior to what has come before. So superior to you know, the revelation through Moses, superior to the revelation through the prophets. And part of that argument is to do with the fact that what the prophets received was ultimately a revelation through angels, through, through yeah. the intermediaries um, that God had appointed, um, whereas this final revelation is through the Son, who is the heir of all things. And so he's in this first chapter, he's trying to demonstrate from quotations from the Old Testament that Jesus is superior in a number of different ways. And he talks there in verse 2, he says, the Son whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now that phrase there, um, through whom he created the world, sort of sets up then what he's going to quote in verse uh, 10 and to 11, 12, is, is to justify that claim. Because on the face of it, you know, the psalm that he quotes, Psalm 102, is an odd mm. place to go for him. It's not a traditional messianic psalm. It's not, or, or you know, it's not one of the passages that we would usually go mm. to in the Old Testament to say, here is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. On the face of it, it, it seems to be about God creating the world. But the fact that he is introduced already in verse 2, this concept of creation, I think is the, is the justification for then him raising that in the quotation of that psalm. What's interesting about the, what he does there, though it says in English translations, through whom he created the world or created the universe, depending on translation, the, the word there is not cosmos, okay. the usual word in Greek for the world. Um, it's the eons, um, and which would use, more usually be translated in a temporal sense, like generations or time period or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that suggests that maybe then the creation that he's talking about is not the Genesis creation, the creation of the world and the plants and whatever else, but is, is, is something else, a different type of creation. And then this is a theme then that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in Colossians chapter 1, but in other parts of Paul's writings too, yeah. about the new creation, about the work that Jesus Christ did in bringing about the, the new creation, which is the church, which is the, sort of the new dispensation in Christ, You know um, that we are all um, his handiwork in that sense. So then that quote, okay. in that context, is the writer saying, effectively, look, Jesus created the church is responsible for this new creation. We, we, we did dip into Colossians 1 uh, as, as well and noted that, you know, firstborn of all creation, but then a couple of verses later, firstborn from the dead, and, uh, referring to the new creation. So that could, that's helpful actually in this passage, if that's the, the, cent, the creation centre that's being talked about uh, in verse 10, because then the contrast is with what perishes and gets 
kind of folded up and and rolled out of the way, which is sort of what happened with the mosaic system. Yep. And this is perhaps saying, you know, the the thing that is created in Jesus, the church, is going to last forever, will not perish. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Okay. That's that's really helpful. Okay. So so this um, this is a, a, we received a question which is which is perhaps um, sometimes leveled at Unitarians, which is by placing so much emphasis on um, the humanity of Jesus. Um, the, the question that we received is, well, where does that leave the virgin birth? What is the point of the virgin birth if all you're really interested in is Jesus being a human being? And, and doesn't Unitarianism inevitably tend to a sort of adoptionist view of Jesus, that he was a human being, mm. um, but adopted as the Son of God? Yeah, sure. There's a couple of things I'd, I'd tease out there. So firstly, the concept of the virgin birth is first and foremost biblical. I mean, I mean, it's affirmed by Matthew's gospel, it's affirmed by Luke's gospel. So if you're taking mm. the Bible as your authority, you're going to have to do something with the virgin birth. You can't ignore it or, or do away with it. So, I, I, you know, for a, a biblical Unitarian, no, you're not going to run away from the virgin birth. Um, I also would say, with my historical hat on, there's at least a good claim to be made, defense to be made on historical grounds, that the virgin birth was believed by the earliest Christians from the earliest days of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and that it may even have been part of Jesus' own uh, teaching from the first century, you know, when he was um, alive on on this earth. So there is a you know a good historical defence to be made for putting aside for a moment the fact that this is obviously a miracle, but there's a good historical yeah. uh, case to be made. So again, Unitarian doesn't do, do away with any of that, so it can't do away with the virgin birth. But also, the virgin birth is actually quite central to our understanding of who Jesus is um, in relation to. God. It would be possible, I suppose, to develop a form of Christianity with just a, a purely human Messiah who was you know, adopted. But the New Testament, I think, wants to say something more about who Jesus is, um, that he's not He's not just a, a really good guy who was then, you know, given a special status by God, but actually that he was chosen and appointed by God and sent at a specific time for a specific purpose. Uh, and then the fact that he is the son of God by virgin birth. And I guess that's a really important point to make. When Luke talks about in his gospel, tries to explain why is Jesus the son of God, it's the virgin birth for Luke that makes Jesus the son of God. So this idea of um, adoptionism, the idea that Jesus could have been adopted as the son of God, doesn't work in, in, in mm. Luke's context. It also, by the way, doesn't, I think, work for Paul. Whilst Paul doesn't explicitly talk about the virgin birth, if you look at the places where he talks about Jesus as the son, it's becomes fairly clear that he doesn't mean just that Jesus was given a special status at a certain point in his life, but actually, no, no, he was mm. in his very essence, in his very being, he was the son of God. That then gives Jesus a claim to, to special authority. You know, there's a question in the Gospels about, well, who is this who to forgive sins? Well, this is somebody with special authority, and he, and he gets that from being his, his state of the Son. How can Jesus be the heir of the creation? How can he, he take up that throne? Uh, Paul says that all judgment has been given to the Son. Where does he get that authority from? It's because he is the Son. But there's also a sort of a, a sense of reconciliation between um, God and man in that joining of God and man, the virgin birth, which is really essential. The, the difference, though, and I think this comes that brings us back to the question: the difference between the virgin birth of the Unitarian and then the union of the two natures mm. for a Trinitarian, that sort of hypostatic union thing, is that actually that Unitarian understanding of the virgin birth avoids the contradiction of how do you join yeah. two incompatibilities? If God is immortal, 
but it is essential to our salvation that Jesus dies on the cross. That brings you to a, a logical inconsistency. And even the sort of concept of the hypostatic union, the idea that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, doesn't seem to resolve that inconsistency, right? Because if Jesus died on the cross but was still immortal mm. because he's fully God, well, then which bit of him died? Did he fully die on the cross? And if not, well, then does that, you know, he, you know did he actually die? So there's, there's, a, some, there's something there right at the center that doesn't work if you're trying to bring those two things together. But a, a Unitarian understanding of the virgin birth brings together the divine nature and the human nature into a single individual without that contradiction. Yeah. There's nothing problematic about the idea of Jesus being a, a human who can sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in every way as we are, as the writer of the Hebrews says, knowing pain and suffering and dying on the cross, as the Bible affirms, whilst also being the son and heir of, of the Lord God through that union in the virgin birth, because it doesn't require us to claim that Jesus is fully God in the way that the Trinitarian wants to affirm. Okay, thank you. So we've covered a, uh, a fair few areas. Uh, just just a couple of final questions to um, to, to wrap up. I, I mean, we d- we did receive one question about uh, which was essentially stop arguing about trinitarian versus unitarianism. We all uh, we all love Christ. Uh, let's let's get on and work together. So so the question is, well, why why does this why does this matter? And and what implication what real implications are there for this kind of debate on Christian life and practice? So. I think first things first. I mean, I, I would want to say I would have some sympathy with the with the questioner, right? There's, mm. you, we don't want to spend all our time arguing and disagreeing, and there are more important things to do in our faith. You know, when Paul says in Corinthians 13 about you know the three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You know, this tells us where our yeah. priorities yeah. should be lying, right? So I've got some sympathy with that as a as a concept, but it does it does matter for for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, you know, as Christians, we're sort of we are committed to truth. And there is value in, you know, mm. wanting to know as best as we can which things are true. So, you know, we should not be shying away from that. But also, our understanding of God is central to our relationship with God. And if we don't have a good understanding of who God is, that's going to impact our relationship. But it does have real practical significance in just the things you do day to day. When I was at, at uni, I spent a lot of time with Christians of all sort of flavors. And I remember once I was at meeting at uh, with some Christian, with some Trinitarian Christians, and they decided that you know they hadn't prayed to God as the Spirit for a long, you know, they just hadn't really done it. So they thought, well, wait a minute, you know, the Spirit is we we believe the Spirit mm-hmm. is you know one of the, the persons of the Trinity. We should be praying to this too. So let's have this prayer meeting. And of course, as a Unitarian, this is not something that I would have ever even dreamed of doing. It's not something that. Yeah crosses my mind because we don't believe the spirit is a person we believe the spirit is the power and presence of god so the idea of praying to the spirit doesn't make sense paul encourages us to pray through the spirit uh but you know we never never encouraged in the new testament to pray to the spirit so this very simple question of well who do you pray to right it has yeah. real you know significance then you know if, if you believe there are three persons then absolutely you should be praying to all three equally i mean that only seems fair and, you know, if there are Trinitarians out there who are not praying to God the Spirit very often, mm. why, right? If that's what you believe. And again, this is a question of who do you worship? We talked earlier about this, you know, how the early Christians worship and how they sort of have this special concept of worship for God the Father. And then, you know, obviously they reverence the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, you know, going to be different for you. And if you, one of the, I guess, observations that you might make about um, a lot of sort of evangelical worship songs, it's a lot of worship of Jesus. There's a lot of sort of songs about Jesus and directed to Jesus. Mm. 
Um, yeah. And I don't, again, don't have a problem with, you know, worthy is the Lamb who sits upon the throne. I don't have a problem with referencing Jesus. Yeah. But our Heavenly Father is the one who should be given all worship. You know, Paul, Paul talks, you know, whenever you talk about glory and honor, you know, in the New Testament, it is glory and honor to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is very rarely singled out for glory. So the idea of, you know, putting Jesus above the, our, our Heavenly Father in the way that we worship is something we should be concerned about. Um, and actually, again, as Unitarians, we would want to direct that special worship, that special significance to the Father, yeah. whilst referencing the Son. And I think just, you know, just on a purely practical note, who are you talking about when you talk about God? So when we pray, you know, whenever somebody prays and says, you know, dear God, we're imagining God as a person. You know, this idea of there is one person who answers to the name God isn't actually consistent with Trinitarian theology. And I, and I wonder if that, sort of extending that slightly, in praying, for example, for forgiveness, how do you ask for forgiveness and who do you go to to ask for forgiveness if jesus is entwined with with god and and you need another mediator to to achieve that yeah. then that's where the role of priests has has come into play yeah absolutely uh, and in a very different different practical sense yeah that's a really good point okay let's just just one one final thing then thank you very much for answering the questions that that, that we received and uh, and exploring the areas that um, that arose from our previous episodes. Perhaps finally, just for people who are exploring this subject and maybe questioning previously held hmm. views or, or traditions that they've received, are there any particular ways of approaching the subject or resources uh, that you'd recommend? Sure, of course. So one of the things that's um, very recent, there's a series of um, videos out there from the Gospel Online project, yeah. like Christelphin's series of, of videos about the Trinity. They're very good, um, worth dipping into. It'd also be worth, outside of the Christelphin community, there's the Unitarian Christian Alliance, and they're putting yeah. out videos about um, the Trinity and about um, Unitarianism. So it's also worth checking out those videos and, and the other resources that they're they're putting out. We've already talked about the book, One God the Father, yeah. um, but as I say, you know, people can access that. That's quite um, hopefully quite readable. Um, and in there, there will also be other resources cited that people can go to if they want to follow up some of that. And then my book uh, about dynamic monarchianism, if people are interested in non-Trinitarians of the second and third century. Okay, that's dynamic. What's the title? Dynamic monarchianism okay. is the title of the book. Um, and that's an interesting scholarly term for this group of people who did not believe in the pre-existence of Jesus, uh, but affirmed the virgin birth and are active around the second and third centuries. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, and if people wanted to actually be my master's or, or my doctorate <laughs> they are in fact you know available online so you know they are written for an academic audience but if people wanted to consult them they, they would find them okay excellent well thank you very much tom again for, for spending the time with us and thank you to um to our listeners who have um made it to the end of another podcast uh, episode well done on achieving that if you have any any thoughts or questions that have arisen from from this and what we've discussed uh, in this episode then please get in touch uh, you can do that on our website at biblefeed.org and you can comment on any of the podcast episodes or the blog items that we put there or just send a general message to us you can find us on facebook just search for bible feed and on instagram uh, bible feed online so please get in touch and if you listen to this on a podcast app then like it follow it recommend it whatever the term is that the podcast app uses uh, because that always helps uh, other people to to find what we're doing so uh, thank you and goodbye until next time god bless you've been listening to the bible feed podcast thanks for joining us we're always keen to hear what you think 
any questions or subjects you'd like to discuss. So get in touch with us uh, through our Facebook page or send us a message on our website at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey. Thank you.